turn now to Colossians 3 and verses 9 through 11 for the preaching of God's Word. Colossians 3 verses 9 through 11. Hear then the Word of God. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, Scythian bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. These three verses before us this evening as we think again on the Christian's life in this world. And there's tremendous help, of course, in this portion of God's Word, I trust, as we're beginning to see as Paul begins with this assertion of our union with Christ, as we saw in verse 1, if you then be risen with Christ, and likewise, as it is in verse 3, with Christ and God. And again, verse 4, when Christ, who is our life. Now it is that Paul has called us to put off the deeds of the body, to mortify uh, that remnant of sin, which we considered last time. But now he complements that with a testimony of what it is we're to put on. And this is a helpful reminder throughout the Scriptures this truth is presented to us, that not only are we called to wage war against something, namely our sin, but we are to labor for something, namely the conformity of ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet it's here where we can be tripped up on many, in many ways, as the Galatians seemingly were, as they in one sense were seeking greater conformity and seeking advancement in holiness, but had misstepped and had relied upon themselves. Well, Paul helpfully, by guidance, of course, of the Spirit, gives to us insight Notice that Paul begins a call, lie not one to another. That's a specific thing. Don't lie to one another. And he'll bring up another number of specific things to come. But notice he instantly moves to a more foundational truth, which is a helpful insight that the specifics of obedience and holiness are the outworkings of a more fundamental reality for the believer. Notice verse 9, lie not one to another. Why? It's not just because it's wrong to lie to one another. It's not just because it's right to tell the truth. But he draws our attention to a fundamental change and reality. Seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. You notice that connection. The deeds are the outworkings of an identity here noted as the old man. It's what he has earlier mentioned in verse 5, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, and then he highlights all number of sins. And he says, you have put that off. We'll see that that's not a comprehensive and perfect putting off, but it is an initial work that is truly uh, uh, taking place. And then he'll notice, he says, not only have you put off this uh, reigning old man, but you have, verse 10, put on 
the new man. And the images are actually like one taking soiled clothing and putting them off and taking new clothing and putting it on. But notice it's not clothing. Here it's the old man and that of the new man. And then he goes further to help us understand something of that new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. What an expression. The new man is actually, in one sense, the oldest man. What do we mean by that? Well, remember, Adam was made in the image of God. Now, it doesn't mean, of course, that since the fall that the image of God has been absolutely effaced and erased from mankind. We see, for instance, in the book of Genesis, that capital punishment is to be applied to murderers because those who are so murdered bear the image of God. And James speaks of the fact that we're not to curse others so carelessly because they bear God's image. But the point is that since the fall, that image has been corrupted. It has been ruined. And one aspect of the Lord's grace for the believer is that He's restoring His image in His people. And so this is the point that the new man is renewed. It's being uh, remade. It's being uh, beautified in knowledge. Notice what's the standard? The image of Him that created Him. After God. God who made us is the one who is the standard to which then the new man is being conformed. So you can think of the original being God Himself and the reflection being His image in us. And that image is being renewed. It's being brought to greater conformity. And so, this is one aspect of that grace, which you'll notice then. It obliterates the ceremonial distinctions and even cultural distinctions where there is neither Greek nor Jew. So that would be the ceremonial and likewise circumcision or uncircumcision. But then he goes further. Barbarian, Scythian, different uh, aspects of Gentile life, bond nor free. Uh, but Christ is all and in all. So Christ is being formed in every believer. And this is the uh, grand encouragement for whatever other distinctions there are in society. Paul's not saying society's done and everyone's just sort of in an egalitarian lifestyle. He's saying as far as regards the new man, as far as regards the growth in grace, Christians are equal because they have uh, this union with Christ and this new work begun. Brethren, this sets up for what we'll consider the Lord willing next week when He says in verse 12, put on therefore as the elect of God. And He goes on to these particular graces. And so if we step back, what we see is Paul is addressing a comprehensive view of sanctification. And he's going to get fairly detailed, although he won't get into the most granular treatment of holy duties. He is going to address different uh, circumstances, different uh, individuals. You'll notice he doesn't say there's no such thing as a wife because we're in Christ. No, he says, wives, this is your calling. He doesn't say, listen, there's no more husbands. No, husbands, this is your calling. And then he's going to talk about prayer and he's going to talk about how we live before the world. 
But you'll notice that that's the outworking, that's the deeds of something more fundamental, the new man. And so what Paul's helping us see is that sanctification consists in both a putting off and putting to death, and a putting on and a making alive. Now, fundamentally, this is begun by God's grace, right? We don't, as it were, convert ourselves. We don't give ourselves the new birth. But once that new birth is begun, just as you as a child were conceived and then you were born and then you were passively cared for and then gained strength and you were then energetic and so on, so spiritually, the is one who has been saved, was acted upon and is continually acted upon. But as he matures and grows, he's able to engage against sin and engage for righteousness. And both of these make up the picture of sanctification, whereby we put to death sin and whereby we put on and cultivate righteousness. Now we'll get to that latter part, but before we do, notice this foundation that the Christian's new life has begun. The Christian's new life isn't something that just is, is waiting for him when he breathes his last here or when the trumpet sounds and Christ descends. The heavenly life has already begun in the Christian. And it's this which is the foundation for all of the particular calls of obedience which are radically uh, uh, set before us and utterly impossible for natural man. When you think of the things, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount that Christ sets before His disciples, it doesn't take very long for a rational person to say, these things are impossible for natural man. We can pretend to them. We can put, as it were, you know, different uh, approaches upon ourselves and act as if these things are the case. We can mimic the outward. But when there's such discussions as forgiving one from the heart, when there's the addressing of uh, uh, the issues of intention and other such things and doing these things unto the Lord, it's then that we realize this is of such a radical nature that it demands supernatural grace proceeding. And this is a great problem that comes up in different ways throughout church history and is at work in our own generation where people think that the Christian ethic and the Christian worldview is something that can largely be naturally realized. And once it is, well, then the Christian world has met its goal. There's some truth, of course, the Christian worldview can, in an outward fashion, be taught and learned by natural and fallen men. But the problem with that is, it's not a Christian worldview that the Bible is seeking. It's a Christian kingdom wherein lives are from the inside transformed and the heart's desires are made to love the Lord and desire Him above all else. And when that takes place, then all of these, not just outward, but inward demands are increasingly fulfilled. So consider then this new life begun by looking firstly at the identity of this new life, and secondly, the cause of this new life. And as we do, it sets us up not only for the next few verses, but it helps us to see just how beautiful a thing it is that God has begun in the life 
of his saved people. Well, firstly then, what is the identity of this new life? Well, what we can say is uh, one aspect of its identity is that it impacts the whole man. In other words, as you're looking for what is this new life, it would be wrong to sort of look at it merely in speech or merely in thought or merely in action or desire. Instead, notice the language, you have put off the old man and then building on that, put on the new, the new man, the whole thing. And so you can see perhaps an analogy when we use the expression of total depravity. The meaning of total depravity is not that men are as wicked as they can be, but that everything about them has been impacted and is corrupted by sin. So, of course, a man could always commit more sin. There's never been someone who has only and fully exceeded all of the boundaries in the highest of degrees. It's true that fallen men only sin, but the degrees of that sin, the heinousness of that sin, is not always to the extent that it can be committed. So total depravity refers to the fact that the whole man has been corrupted by sin. Well, similarly, the fact of God's saving change and grace upon an individual is bringing this truth in, that the whole man has been transformed. His desires, his inclinations, his thoughts, his actions have been touched and influenced and transformed by the grace of God. There is a comprehensive, not an exhaustive, not a full and perfect, but nonetheless a comprehensive change. Now this is important. You can see it, for instance, in some of the things in our own day where this truth is not realized. There are people who talk about their proclivity to certain sins prior to being converted and still talk about that as their identity today. But when we understand this, that there is such a comprehensive transformation that takes place, what is being said is your identity is no longer what you were, but is now what you have been made to be and are being made to be more fully in the years to come. So there's no place for a Christian to speak in such ways of like, no, I am an, uh, a, a fornicating Christian, or I am a lying Christian, or I am a blasphemous Christian, or I am a gay Christian. All of that is absolutely rejected by God's Word. It may be true that the Christian struggles with certain sins and temptations, but those things are no longer his or her identity. Because that belongs to the old man, which is now to be put to death, which has been taken off in an initial manner and is to be continually resisted and put away. So that if uh, someone before the grace of God had been uh, much taken up by lying, they may in fact, after the Lord's grace, find that to be a strong temptation in their life, but that's something that belongs to the old man and is no longer what they are. It's no longer part of their, their identity. Moreover, it doesn't do anything 
simply to say, well, my actions will change, but I can't change my desires. You see, that notion is foreign to Christianity because the fact of grace is that it impacts not just the actions, but it actually impacts the desires and thoughts. And so this is built up in the whole expression of the old man and the new. Notice, what are they to put off? What are they to put to death? The members which are upon the, bo- upon the earth, which includes not just actions, but inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness. It's to, they're to put off anger, wrath, malice, and so on. And so it does no one any good to say, well, this is the great change of the Christian. Their actions are transformed. Well, that is an aspect of the great change. But the great change is far better than that because it actually transforms the thoughts and it transforms the desires. And this is why he says, you've put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of Him that created Him. And we'll go on, of course, in the next section of this, but you'll notice it's the whole man that is being transformed. Now someone may say, but, you know, listen, I know that's true, but my desires still are a struggle. It's not like all of a sudden my desires have just been lifted off of these things and put only upon holy and pure things. And this is true, and it would be a mistake of any Christian to think otherwise. It could be tremendously maddening and disheartening for someone to think, if I'm converted, I'll never struggle with these temptations again. That's not the fact. We'll talk about that more, the Lord willing, next time. But notice where there is an all-readiness to the putting on of the new man. Notice, just beyond our, our passage in verse 12, there's an exhortation still to put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, and so on. So there's to be the active cultivating of the greater realization of this change. So it's begun passively, as we'll see, but once begun, the principle of life is to be actively engaged by the believer. So it's a whole man that's being changed. So when we say, what is the new man? We, would, we could say, what is the old man? The old man wasn't just wicked thoughts. It wasn't just wicked desires. It wasn't just wicked speech. It wasn't just wicked actions. It's the whole of that. It's all of that. And Paul is using something of an analogy of the natural conception of what a man is. A man is body and soul. And its desires, inclinations, thoughts, and so on is included in that very identity. And that's true of the sinful uh, commitment. It is a a comprehensive uh, taking up of the man and his thoughts, desires, and speech. But You'll notice that this impacts the whole man, and that because it is a gracious change brought upon him. So what is it? Well, it's this comprehensive change that has been brought upon this individual, the believer. Well, how does that come to pass? We'll look at that more fully, but just notice the change. The old man, which is linked to all the sins, is contrasted with the new man, which is linked to all of these graces. So look just at verse 12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, 
bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, and long-suffering. Think of how all of those are oriented toward a loving treatment and serving of others. Contrast that with the things we're to put to death. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence or lust, and covetousness, all of which are vices which are focused upon getting from others, taking from others, and satisfying ourselves. In other words, this identity that's, that's of the old man is one of a gracious change unto love. Whereas the identity of the old man is this sinful consumption with self. There's this tremendous change. And until this change is experienced, there will never be the unseating of the black hole of one's soul that is always desiring its own glory. So you can see this in the Pharisees. The Pharisees stand in the public places and they make long prayers. Why? For to be heard of men. Even in their pious and devout actions, their goal is to take honor unto themselves. And Christ says, listen, they have their reward. They have what they want. What do they want? They want more of themselves. They want more glory to themselves. They want more honor to themselves. It's astounding. You read through the Gospel accounts and there are these times where Christ performs an undeniable miracle. In fact, such miracles as neither the Pharisees nor the scribes deny and they affirm it. And then they get together and they say, how are we going to put Him to death? For that a notable miracle has been performed, none can deny Instead of them saying, we're going to humble ourselves, we're going to repent before Him, their sole concern is putting Christ out. And notice as it says, Pilate says, he was aware that they handed Him over out of envy. They envied Him. They wanted what Christ had. They didn't want it in the gracious way. They wanted the prestige and honor. And it even infiltrates still his disciples, remember John and his brother James come to Christ and their mother as well and says, give us this one desire. Well, what is it? That one of my sons would be on your right hand and one of my sons on your left hand. And Christ reproves that. There's this propensity of sin. Sin is fundamentally about sucking unto ourselves the glory that belongs unto God. You think of the first sin and temptation. What was it? We shall be like God's. Eve looks at that. She sees that the fruit is pleasant to the eye, able to make one wise, and you know, good for food, and so on. And she eats. And Adam takes from her hand and eats as well. They cast off God and they put up themselves. Well, there is in this identity of the new man a radical change of that truth. This gracious change is an unseating from the throne of one's life, this focus upon self. And it starts to make sense with all sorts of things that Christ says. Christ says, if any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You see, he's not saying there in so many ways that this is how you earn being a disciple. He's saying this is what discipleship is. Discipleship will show itself in the saying no to yourself, 
in the putting of yourself to death. Notice that language, take up his cross. What is that? That's exactly what Paul has said, mortify therefore the deeds of your body. Here, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. He's saying in one sense you have to die to yourself. And in another sense, you have to walk in life. He doesn't say die to yourself, put the cross down and nail yourself there. Bear the cross while you follow me. You can see both of these things. There's the putting to death of yourself and sin, and there's the walking in life and following Christ. Here Paul is focused on the latter part, but the point is fundamentally that this new man is that gracious change that touches the whole of the man, which leads to, in other words, Christ-likeness. Notice in the text that Paul says that this is uh, uh, such a work as is renewed in the knowledge after the image of Him that created Him. And as he says in verse 11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all. And in all. It's a gracious change that leads one to be more like Christ. Because what's happening is such grace is being given to one that is making them more to resemble Christ. It's an interesting word that became popular very early on in the history of the church when it is that disciples of Jesus Christ are called Christians. It's a term that's very familiar to us. But its term, the term itself is actually quite instructive. Little Christs. These who are little Christ. Not little saviors, it doesn't mean that, of course. But those who are like Christ. They're walking according to Christ and by Christ and for Christ. And so the new man is that gracious change that then leads us to walk in and for and by and be made like unto Christ in all these ways. Well, what's its cause? Secondly, the cause of the new man. Notice Paul says you have put off the old man. And he says, put on the new. But how is this? How does this come to pass? Well, there are three ways of understanding this. The first of the causes or the uh, reason that there is this new man is firstly by noting that it is by the gracious enlivening of Christ Himself. So notice in verse 1, if ye then be risen with Christ. It doesn't say that you have raised yourselves, but if ye be risen passively, if you have been raised with Christ. Verse 11, it speaks of Christ is all and in all. It points us back to these first four verses we've considered, which are the starting point for all Christian living which is that the new man is brought to be, the new life is begun by the grace of God alone. He's the one who brings it to pass. John speaks of the beginning of the new life in John chapter 3 in very familiar ways as a new birth. When he's recording what Christ says in verse 3, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so in other words, there must be the gracious work of God upon the soul, upon the man, in order for this new life to begin. 
There's a book that was quite popular in you know, the mid and late 1900s called How to Be Born Again. And this book title is entirely misleading. There are certainly means that one can use. There are certainly things that one can, people can sit themselves in front of, namely and primarily the preaching of God's Word. But there is no how-to manual to be born again. It's impossible for one to make themselves born again. That's why when it's speaking of those things in the Scriptures, it's passive, except a man be born again. If ye then be risen with Christ, the initial beginnings of the new life is as passive to the one who has that life as the initial beginnings of natural life. The child conceived in the womb did nothing to be conceived and did nothing to be born but was passively worked upon and was given life. And so it is spiritually that the new life has begun solely by the sovereign grace of God. This doesn't mean that there aren't things that we as thinking creatures shouldn't be doing. We should be active in presenting ourselves to the means of grace. We should be diligent to read God's Word and to meditate thereon. But we realize that spiritually, except God bless those means, that all of our diligence will amount to nothing because the beginnings of new life is solely by the grace of God. And so this new life is that which God plants in the soul of man. It's His gift. And this is why Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 2, so summarily, for by grace are ye saved, through faith. And notice as he says in that wondrous chapter of salvation by grace that it's faith not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Notice this language. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Children, you think of it this way. Which star in the universe caused itself to exist? None of them. Which particle in the universe caused itself to exist? Not one. And yet the Christian, not just by profession, not just by covenant right, but the vital and believing Christian is one who was created in Christ Jesus unto good works. When the beginnings of new life are mentioned, they're always mentioned in a sovereignly executed way. God caused it. God brought it to pass. God gives the new birth. God creates in Christ Jesus. God quickens us together with Christ. God has given us faith. God has saved us. It's always God who is the one that begins it. Well, further we can note that this new life is caused by the gracious work of Christ. You'll remember in verses 1-4, through four, our privilege is in that we're united to Christ and all that He's done. So He is the and we're risen with Him. He is the reigning Christ and we're seated with Him. He's the returning Christ and we'll be glorified with Him. 
And so his work is actually then applied to us. Now, it's not so clear in this chapter, but elsewhere Paul has written of this quite fully. One example is 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. Notice what he mentions in verse 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and at verse 15. He says, And that he, that is Jesus, died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. His death, so secures our death to sin. And His life so secures our newness of life that it says that now in Christ we are new creatures. Right? It's Christ's work. In other words, it's not just abstracted grace that sort of, quote, flips a switch and now new life begins. It is the applying of Christ's work to the life of that one whom God brings to life. It's His death that then makes us to die to sin. It's His life that then enlivens us unto holiness and so on. So this is one reason, not the only, but one reason that Christ then says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, severed from me, separated from me, cut off from me, you can do nothing. It doesn't mean you can't mimic certain things. Certainly you can. But as far as actual produce of life, actual fruit, you can bear no fruit unless you abide in Me. There's no husband who can truly love his wife as Christ loved the church unless that husband is in Christ. And not only in Christ, but as we'll see, actively drawing from Christ. There's no wife who can submit herself unto her own husband as unto the Lord, except that wife be vitally engaged with Christ. There's no child who can obey their parents in all things who is not himself or herself in union with Christ. And there's no father who can shepherd their children without provoking them to anger unless that father is one who is united to the person Christ. In other words, brethren, the cause of the new life is the one who is the life. And so it's the grace of God which works upon us, but it's the grace of God applying Christ to us. And what happens is we start to see that the new life is Christ-centered. That's such a cheap expression today. You can plaster it on any book that you want, an article and blog post, People will think something of it because it has that phrase. But the reason that phrase has become so popular is because though it's often misused and abused, it's a truth throughout the Scripture. The life of the new man is the life of Christ living in, applied to, and working out in our own lives. This means that if ever it is we are to enjoy that new life, there must be, if ever there is to be a maturing of that new life, there must be, if ever there is to be the cultivating of this new life, there must be communion with Christ. 
These are two unique and yet related ideas. Union with Christ speaks of our being brought into a relationship with Him. He dwells in us, we dwell in Him. But communing with Christ means the engagement of our souls, drawing from Christ, enjoying Christ, living upon Christ. And as the new life is begun by virtue of union with Christ, the new life is continued and strengthened by virtue, as we'll see, of communing with Christ. Which is why Paul will go on to say, put on the new man, and so on. So the grace of God which enlivens us by applying to us the work of Christ. You'll also notice that we can speak of the cause being the glory of God through the change that takes place. In other words, it's not the cause which initiates, but it's the cause as to why God has done this change. It's the final cause, we might say, God's glory. How do we see that? Well, notice how this passage begins, lie not one to another, don't deceive one another, don't you know, lie to, to others, and so on. And it'll go on as to what we should do and so on. The point is, the new life that's begun is for the purpose of transforming us to glorify God. God is at work in His people in order to bring forth a people who walk in His light, who praise Him. This is one reason that Paul says, but Christ is all and in all. Notice that thing. Christ is all. That's their identity. It's for Christ. If you're a Christian, your purpose is Christ. That's your purpose. You don't have to wake up tomorrow and scratch your head and think, what is my purpose today? Of course, our catechism says that it's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, which is not different than or opposed to, but is another expression of this point. My purpose is Christ. I live now for Christ. That's why all of these particulars of wives, husbands, children, fathers, servants, and masters are oriented now to Christ. As a husband, I've been transformed by His life applied to me and working in me to serve now to His purpose. You can think of how this would transform so many of our thoughts. If our world were to read you know, verse 22 about slaves, they would be absolutely appalled. What are you talking about? Slaves, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, and not only obey them, but not with eye service as men-pleasers? What are you talking about? The, the purpose of God's grace is to liberate us from all of these things and so on. And Paul says, no, the purpose of God's grace is to transform you to love and serve God. Now, there's the reality that we should labor for justice and we should labor for transformation of society and the riddance of abuses and all of those things. But notice, more fundamental than the changing of societal structures is the changing of the Christian in those structures, in those difficulties, in their trials, to love and serve God. The new life is not for societal change as its primary outworking. It's for the life change of the one whom God 
is working in. So we're not saying, of course, that we shouldn't stand against injustice and opposition of right standards and so on. But what the Bible is telling us is that the preeminent cause of God changing His people is that they then would glorify God regardless of their circumstances. Whether they're bond or free. Whether they're Jew or Gentile. Whether they're barbarian, Scythian, whatever their social standing, whatever their financial circumstance, whatever their cultural background, whatever those outward things are, Paul says, none of that is the main thing anymore. None of that's your focus anymore. None of that's your cause of complaint. None of that's your cause of encouragement. Because the new life that has been given to you has given you that which transcends everything else. Because you've been given Christ. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ speaks of this purpose that we have so to let our light shine that men would see our good deeds and glorify our God in heaven. It's astounding how Christians can get off track and start to make major, rather minor themes. To make primary what are at best secondary themes. And yet in doing so, what happens is the primary gets glossed over and ignored. The primary issue before us is that God is at work making a people better to resemble Himself. That delight in Him, that live by Him, and that live for Him. Why is it that there's new life? Well, in one sense we can say it's because God has begun it. It's because Christ has been applied to that soul. But we can say, why is that the case? Why is God beginning this new life? Why is He applying Christ to the soul? It's not to make your social economic standard change. That may be something that comes to pass in some ways, but it may frankly be the opposite happens. It may be that as you serve the Lord, that your standing drops off even more. Remember the Christians in the early days, and still many today, were persecuted. They didn't see riches come. They saw riches riches flee. They didn't see society change for the better. They saw in their day society change for the worse. And yet, God didn't say, you know, I'm sorry that I've begun a good work in you, and this is really frustrating, I'm sure. He calls them in the midst of their trials to remember the reason for which God has given them new life, which is to know Christ and to make Him known. Brethren, there is nothing better in this world than either to know Christ and to make Him known. And not just as a preacher who heralds the Gospel through the preaching of sermons, but the making of Him known through your speech and actions that men would see Christ in you, the hope of glory. That men would see the good work of God by you to the praise of God. You know, sometimes we read these Christian biographies which are tremendously edifying and then we make a wrong use of them and we think, you know, either how could I become great like they became great or we think, you know, I'm worthless because I'm not doing any of these things. I'm not in the forefront of all of those things and we've misstepped 
and we've misused a good resource. The purpose of Christian biographies is to display to us certain lives that are changed by God's grace in their circumstances, whether missionaries or preachers or nurses or whatever else they may be. They're not to say this is what you must be in all of those particular circumstances. Think of for a moment in the church of Colossae. When this epistle was read, there would have been husbands, wives, fathers, servants, children, masters. All of them would have been present. And the servant would have heard these words, Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart fearing God. Whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. And if that message were spoken in our day, how many people would say this is worthless? You're telling me that I might have to spend the rest of my life as a slave? You're telling me that I might be a low-wage earner the rest of my life? That's not worth it. You see, it's because such people have been unchanged from the inside. When we're lusting after mere worldly advance, what is that telling us? But that really the old man is still on the throne. That really ultimately it's the self the selfish desire that is still ruling. But the servant who is a believer and hears, listen, obey in all things, your masters according to the flesh, not with eye servants, eye service as men pleasers, etc. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord. What happens? The servant says, I get to serve the Lord. I get the privilege in my circumstance with a name that no one will ever know. No book will ever be written about me. I have the privilege of serving the Lord. What happens to the wife who hears the word, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as is fit in the Lord? She hears these words and our world would say, what an oppressive regime that would say to wives, submit. And yet the believing woman, the graciously changed woman says, this is what's fit in the Lord. Praise God. I have the privilege of honoring and walking in the Lord. I, in this circumstance, which the sovereign God over all the universe has placed me, has now given me life that in this common calling, I get to show forth the praises of Him that called me. Same with fathers. Provoke not your children. My children, why do I have to think about my children? I've got such big and lofty things I need to be doing. No. As fathers, you focus on your children. This is your calling. You see, all of these things start to be shown as the outworking of grace for the purpose of showing praise to Christ. Why is it that this new life is begun? How is it that this new life is begun? The gracious applying of Christ to the advance of the praise of Christ now and forever. Well, brethren, this is a truth which orients us to nothing less than heaven begun in this world. There's much more, of course, to be enjoyed in heaven. But the essence of heaven is the soul and body consumed with giving praise to God giving glory, all envy, all coveting, all sin is put off. 
perfectly in heaven. And what happens in the new life is that that life, as it were, is planted here and is begun. will grow up unto maturity and one day will flourish with all perfection when it is that Christ returns. So brethren, you have, by Christ, heaven at work in your life. It's imperfect now, not for any fault of the Father or Son or Spirit, but in His way, He has determined that it has begun now and should grow until that final day that He calls us to Himself. But you also have here a great cause of encouragement because the outworking of grace is begun by the inworking of grace. In other words, the calls to holiness and activity for wives and husbands and fathers and children and masters and servants and so on, all of the particulars is but the calling for the outworking of what He's placed within us. It's calling for us to live upon the resources He has supplied. He doesn't say to His people, you know what, here are the high standards. Now you go figure out, you find a way to accomplish it. He first actually provides us all the strength and all of the resources we'll ever need to fulfill all of these details to which He calls us. So we're united to Christ and then He calls us to live for Christ. And so, brethren, when you hear the high calling of standards that are to be the marks of Christians, you shouldn't despair apart from despairing that you yourself by your own strength and grit and wherewithal should ever accomplish it. But you should not despair of accomplishing it by the life of Christ in you. When you see the high standards, you should say, I will never accomplish that in myself, but I look to Christ and I come to Christ and I pray, O Christ, as You now live in me, work within me that You would bring these things to pass by me. It directs us to that new life which is Christ in us. The hope of glory. See how utterly vain it is for a carnal man to try and fulfill the terms of sanctification. Never, never can it be done. But you can also see, whatever we are by way of learning, by whatever we are by way of financial status, whether Greek or Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, whatever our outward earthly circumstances are, none of those keep us back from honoring Christ. Because Christ is all and in all. As we close then, brethren, as we take up next week, the Lord willing, the activity of putting on these various graces, let us see clearly that the activity and the engagement of putting these specifics on is all founded upon what God has already put within us by His grace that we would not live upon our own strength, but would rather draw near to Christ to live upon Him to His glory. Would you stand with me then for prayer?